Many of you, as uh, summer has come upon us and kids are getting out of school, many of you have made plans for summer vacations. And uh, I was curious this last week what the top five vacation spots are in the United States. And so according to USA Today, here are the top five vacation spots in the United States. Number one is New York, New York. That probably doesn't surprise you. More people go to New York every year than any other city in the nation. Number two, second most common spot to visit is Florida. Number three is Hawaii. Number four surprised me a little bit. I didn't know this would be so high on the list. Number four is San Francisco. And the fifth biggest tourist trap in the entire United States, where more people go to than just about anywhere else, fabulous Las Vegas, right? Fifth most popular vacation destination in the United States. Catch this. Tourists spend a whopping $35 billion in Las Vegas every year. People love the shows, the food, and most of all, the gambling. And Americans love the motto of Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Well, Las Vegas is filled with lots of guilty pleasures, decadent food and sensual shows and plenty of greed for more and more money, and Americans flock to it by the millions every year. Las Vegas in our day has an awful lot in common with the city of Corinth in Paul's day. Corinth was the sin city of the Roman world. And the Corinthian leaders would have adopted Las Vegas' motto if they had only thought of it first. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Well, today we're looking at part 14 of our study of the life of Paul. Today's message I'm calling 18 Months in Sin City. 18 Months in Sin City. Well, back in Acts chapter 16... While Paul was ministering in Northwest Asia, he had a vision. Uh, remember in that vision, we talked about this last month, a, a man from northern Greece, that area back then called Macedonia. This man from northern Greece, he stood up and he begged Paul. He said, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul woke up and he, he took that to mean that God was clearly calling him and his missionary team to go into Europe for the first time, to go there into northern Greece, into those key cities and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And so Paul and his missionary companions, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they wasted no time boarding a ship and heading to Macedonia. And over the last few weeks, we've seen what happened there in northern Greece. Paul and his missionary buddies visited three strategic cities. They started in the north at Philippi, then they went to Thessalonica, and then to Berea. So that northern area of Greece was called Macedonia. So those were the three key cities they ministered to in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And after leaving Berea, Paul traveled 150 miles down to Athens. We talked about that last week. And unlike in those prior three cities, Paul was by himself. His missionary companions stayed behind 
in Berea, and then Luke, it seems, was probably still there in Philippi. And so he was by himself, and as we saw last week, he went into that intellectual capital of the Greek, the Greek world, uh, that city where Aristotle and, and Socrates and Plato, those great Greek philosophers, uh, had lived and, and, and done their, their wonderful work of philosophizing. Uh, there he was in Athens, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the brainiacs of the Greek world. Well, Paul's original plan was for his missionary companion, Silas and Timothy, to meet up with him in Athens. But today, as we pick up in Acts 18, verse 1, it appears that never happened. Uh, Paul wraps up his ministry in Athens, and he moves on to the second key city there in southern Greece, the city of Corinth, where after a few weeks, his missionary companions would finally catch up with him. And so there it is in southern Greece. Back then, that region was called Achaia. And so Macedonia in the north, Achaia in the south. If I pronounce it incorrectly, uh, forgive me. I've pronounced it wrong for years. I looked it up finally today. It should be pronounced Achaia. I've always called it Achaia. But however you say it, that southern area of Greece, uh, Paul focused on two key cities, Athens, and today's focus, the second city, the city of Corinth. So we're in Acts chapter 18. Please follow along in your Bibles. And by the way, if you have a piece of paper and a pen handy to jot down some notes, even better. Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. While Silas and Timothy, or excuse me, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler and his entire household, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. May God bless us as we study and, most importantly, apply his word to our lives today. Well, before we take a closer look at these verses here in Acts 18, I'd like to point out three very important details about the city of Corinth in Paul's day. First of all, I, I want you to know that Corinth was a strategic city. It was a strategic city. Uh, write that down quickly because I, I want to show you a map on the screen here and tell you a little bit about why it was such a strategic city. So we'll go ahead and put this map up for you. Like Florida, Greece was a peninsula. 
It was surrounded by water on three sides. To the west was the Ionian Sea. Uh, to the east was the Aegean Sea. And to the south uh, was that Mediterranean Sea. And so being surrounded by water on three sides, uh, there were many key cities throughout Greece uh, that had uh, waterways that were right there against one of those key cities, uh, key seas. And so we had these three seas uh, that surrounded Greece, and those seas were particularly important in southern Greece because there in southern Greece, all three seas were very close by. Now, you can notice here uh, Athens is over here on almost on the tip of, of part of that partial peninsula there. And you can probably notice on the map there's this tiny little stretch of land, a little bitty land bridge that separated the Ionian Sea in the west from the Aegean Sea in the east. This tiny little land bridge at its most narrow point was only four miles wide. And so if you wanted to get from northern Greece, Macedonia, to southern Greece, Achaia, you would have to go across that four-mile land bridge. And guess where Corinth was located? Right there next to that little land bridge. It was strategically located on the north-south trade routes. If you wanted to trade from the south up to the north or from the north down to the south, you had to go right through Corinth. But there was another factor that made Corinth such a strategic city. You see, those that uh, were traders uh, by way of ship, they knew that if they wanted to take their supplies over here to the west, to Italy, or maybe even further west to Spain, to travel around the southern tip of Greece was deadly. Because here at the southern tip of Greece, especially in the wintertime, the waters of the Mediterranean Sea were very choppy, and these freakish storms would kick up out of nowhere, and so ship after ship after ship would be destroyed on the rocks there in southern Greece. And so also it was a 200-mile loop around that tip of Greece. And so what these maritime experts began to do is they said, you know what we're going to do? It's going to be safer and faster to just dock the ship outside of Corinth, and we are going to offload our ship and actually drag our ship four miles across the land bridge to the other sea on the other side. And they would do this from east to west, and they do it from west to east. It was actually quicker and safer to offload the ship and drag the ship across the land. And so Corinth was right there at that strategic location on the north-south trade routes and also the east-west trade routes. Corinth was a very strategic City. By the way, the Greeks, they had this old saying, for those that like to sail around the southern tip of Greece, they would say, let him who thinks of sailing around southern Greece make his will. <laughs> That's how dangerous it was. So Corinth became very, very popular. It was a safer and quicker bet for getting east-west trade routes going. Well, finally, in the late 1800s, they actually built a canal across that land bridge, but that didn't happen until just over 100 years ago. Back then, in Paul's day, they had to drag the ships across the land. All that to say, Corinth was smack dab in the middle of all these trade routes. So it wouldn't be an overstatement to say that millions of people passed through Corinth every year. If Athens was the college town of Greece the intellectual center of Greece, Corinth, was the marketplace of Greece. 
Well, let's look at this second detail I don't want you to miss. Corinth was a big city, a huge city in Paul's day compared to other cities around. In Paul's day, Corinth was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. Historians guess that in Paul's day, there were somewhere around 200,000 residents there in Corinth. Compare that to other towns that of a decent size may have had 10,000. 200,000 residents. Uh, that's equivalent to the populations of Victorville and Apple Valley added together and then some for good measure. So in those days, this was a really big city. And the third thing I want you to notice is that Corinth was a wicked city. And this is going to be really relevant, particularly as we talk a little bit about the letters Paul later writes to the church in Corinth, the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians that are in the New Testament, uh, because we see very quickly in 1st Corinthians uh, that there was a lot of sin, not just outside the church in Corinth, but even inside the church. Uh, Corinth was a wicked city. Just imagine what kinds of things uh, rich merchants might get into if they were hundreds of miles from home and had wads of cash in their pockets. Uh, what do you think they would get into if they knew for a fact that there's no way their wife and kids back home would ever find out what happened because what goes on in Corinth stays in Corinth? Imagine, let your mind wander a little bit, not too far, but let your mind wander a little bit. I'm telling you, this was Sin City. There were bars on every corner, so drunken orgies were common. And perched high above the city, 2,000 feet above sea level, was Acro-Corinth. Uh, we talked about those Acro cities last week when we talked about Athens, and oftentimes the key cities in Greece would have part of the city built up on top of a large hill where they could overlook the entire city below, and it would be the defensible space uh, for the government center there of that city. And so Acro-Corinth, it just so happened in Corinth, they had this huge hill, 2,000 feet high, that had a nice flat plateau on top. And you can even see today, if you were to visit Corinth, these walls that to a large extent still remain of that fortress of Acro-Corinth. And what was at the hub of Acro-Corinth on top of that plateau? None other than the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. You may know her by her Roman name, Venus. Remember uh, the old classic song by Frankie Avalon? Venus, goddess of love that you are. And he sings about Venus because he wants a girl. And we like to sing sometimes that song as we're humming along with it because, you know, it's a classic. It's a classic rock, right? It's beautiful. Well, when you study who Venus really was, who Aphrodite really was, it's really not so beautiful. Uh, she wasn't a particularly moral goddess. In fact, Venus, Aphrodite, she was the goddess of love and the goddess of sex. And let your mind just wander a little bit. What do you suppose happens in a temple where you're worshiping the goddess of sex? Yeah, you pretty much guessed it. She's called out as the goddess of love and sex, but at that temple, there was very little loving and a whole lot of sex. You know, they definitely leaned one direction. At its heyday, this temple to Aphrodite up on top of Acro-Corinth had boasted 1,000 male and female temple prostitutes. 
And in Paul's day, there weren't that quite, quite that many. There were a modest few hundred temple prostitutes. And every night, these temple prostitutes would come down off the hillside of Acro-Corinth, down into the main city of Corinth, and they would ply their trade. And so these merchants coming by the thousands every week into Corinth, uh, they were getting drunk, they were having orgies, they're having sexual relations with all these temple prostitutes. And so it was a very wicked place. In fact, in those days, the Corinthians, uh, they didn't have a very good reputation even among pagans throughout the country of Greece. In fact, the, the Greek people coined a couple terms because it was so well known that Corinth was a wicked, uh, adulterous place. They had these couple terms. Uh, Corinthiastes was the Greek term for a prostitute. See how that word Corinth is in that word they created? And then the second word, Corinthiazomai, was a verb which meant to engage in sexual immorality. Imagine that if you live in Victorville, that someone coins a term to Victorvilleize is to uh, burglarize or to Victorvilleize is to, is to engage in, in fornication or adultery. Uh, that's not a very complimentary thing to say about your town, is it? But that's exactly what they said about Corinth. So if you were in Athens or Thessalonica or Philippi and someone called you a Corinthian, believe me, they weren't paying you a compliment. If someone called you a Corinthian, at best, they were saying you were a pervert. In all likelihood, they were calling you a whore. That's how bad of a reputation Corinth had as far as being immoral. Well, a year or so after finishing his ministry in Corinth, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian Christians, a letter that, as I mentioned a moment ago, is called in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians really clues us in to some of the immorality that was taking place in the city of Corinth. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul rebukes the Christians in the church in Corinth for tolerating a guy in their church who was having sex with his stepmom. That's pretty nasty. In the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes these words in verses 9 through 11. He says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say this, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's quite a list, isn't it? Fornicators, idol worshippers, adulterers, prostitutes, homosexuals, drunkards, greedy swindlers. That's what some of the Christians in Corinth had been before their lives were radically transformed by the power of the gospel. So we ask the question, why did Paul take the good news of Jesus Christ to Corinth? Well, because Corinth was a strategic city, because it was a big city, and because it was a wicked city. Paul saw the city of Corinth as very strategic. I like how John Stott puts it in his commentary on Acts. He writes, Paul must have seen its strategic importance. If trade could radiate from Corinth in all directions, so could the gospel. I like the way Paul thinks. I also uh, think it's well said uh, how uh, William Barclay explains uh, uh, the city of Corinth. He writes these words. He says, the very iniquity of Corinth 
was the opportunity of Christ. Isn't that true? The very iniquity of that person who is resisting the gospel that you know, that you've shared Christ with, that you're praying for their salvation, their very iniquity presents an opportunity for Jesus Christ to do what he does best, to open closed minds, to soften hard hearts, and transform lives with the power of the gospel. Well, let's take a closer look at the passage. In verse 1 of Acts 18, Paul arrives in Corinth, and shortly after arriving, he meets a a nice Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They had recently come from Italy, it says, because Emperor Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Well, that surprises some historians. Really, was there ever a time in history where Claudius actually told the Jews they had to evacuate from the capital city of Rome? Uh, is, is Luke just making this stuff up? And it turns out there is historical documentation of what is said here. Uh, you can go to the first century Roman historian Suetonius, and he writes these words. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, the emperor expelled them from Rome. So historians kind of ask the question back and forth, who is this Crestus that Suetonius is referring to? In all likelihood, Crestus was just a misspelling of Christ. Uh, oftentimes in Greek, you would just say Christos. And so Crestus is probably a reference to Jesus Christ. What seems to have happened is just like Paul kept on coming up against the Jews in the synagogues in all these cities where he did ministry, and eventually the Jews would get jealous and upset that so many people were coming to Christ, and they would cause a riot and all this uproar. Evidently, some of this was happening in Rome, not because Paul was preaching, but because other Christians were there preaching. And so there seems to have been a lot of drama going on in the synagogues, And probably the emperor had heard of some of these riots in some of the other cities throughout his empire. And he says, you know what? I don't need this drama in my capital city of Rome. And so he throws the baby out with the bathwater and expels all Jews. We know this to be historically true. We just don't know for sure if it was partially because of the Christians penetrating those synagogues with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, nothing is said here in Acts 18 about Aquila and Priscilla getting saved, so most likely they were Christians before Paul met them. Uh, Paul sought them out. He discovers that they were tent makers just like him, so Paul moves in with them. He lives with them. He works with them. During the work week, he makes tents, and on evenings and weekends, he preaches the gospel. He's what we call bivocational. He earned his living doing something other than preaching, And in his spare time, he preached the gospel. Many pastors, many missionaries do that today. According to verse 4, every Sabbath, Paul reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul seems to have done this on his own for at least a few weeks. And then in verse 5, we read that Paul's buddies finally show up. And so Silas and Timothy come into town. Uh, They had missed all of Paul's ministry in Athens, but they only missed a few weeks of his ministry here in Corinth, here in Sin City. So once Silas and Timothy arrive, Paul stops making tents. Evidently, Silas and Timothy go to work to help support Paul so Paul can focus exclusively on preaching the gospel in this very strategic 
and sinful city. Notice what it says here. He devotes himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But just as it happened in both Galatia and northern Greece, some of the Jewish leaders opposed Paul fiercely. So according to verse 6, Paul shakes out his clothes in protest against them, and he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, what is Paul getting at here when he says your blood be on your own hands and specifically on your own head? Well, this is really a reference back to a passage that would have been very familiar to all those Jews, a passage from the Old Testament prophetic book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 17 through 21. I want you to notice what it says here in Ezekiel chapter 3. Son of man, God speaking, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the righteous man not to sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live because he took warning, and you will have saved yourself. The Jews in that synagogue in Corinth would have known this passage from Ezekiel really, really well. And so just as the watchman on a city wall was charged with the responsibility of warning the city when an enemy army was approaching, God entrusted the prophet Ezekiel with the responsibility of being a spiritual watchman on the wall for Israel, warning Israel that judgment was coming because of their sin. In a similar way, the Apostle Paul was entrusted by God with the responsibility of warning the Jews that judgment was coming if they rejected Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So as Paul leaves the Corinthian synagogue, shaking off his robes in protest, he's making it very clear that he has fulfilled his responsibility before God. He has told the Jews the plain truth about Jesus Christ. And their need to believe in him, their need to repent of their sin and follow him as Savior and Lord. Now the ball is in their court. They stubbornly rejected the truth about Jesus, so their blood would be on their own heads. Hmm. Well, I believe that Paul, as he walks out the front door of that synagogue, I believe that he was both heartbroken and furious at the same time. You see, Paul loved his fellow Jews, but it frustrated him to no end that they were so stubborn and so slow to believe, and they were so short-sighted. In a huff, Paul storms out of the synagogue, and he starts carrying out plan B. 
which is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ exclusively to the Gentiles there in Corinth. And as he begins to carry out plan B, he doesn't have to walk very far. In fact, it says here in the text, he just had to walk next door. Because adjacent to the synagogue, right next door, was the home of Titius Justice. He was most likely a Roman official of some kind who had accepted Paul's message and had received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And from this point forward, Paul was going to focus primarily on witnessing to Gentiles, probably from the house of Titius Justice. But according to verse 8, some Jews did accept Christ in the city including the synagogue ruler Crispus and his entire household. And many Corinthian Gentiles, it says, accepted Christ and were baptized as well. Well, Paul must have been feeling a little discouraged and scared and uh, must have been wondering if it was time for him to move on to the next town because God speaks to him at the perfect time. Look again at verses 9 and 10. Jesus gives Paul this glorious vision And he speaks these words to Paul. He says, Paul, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people right here in this city. Well, that vision was just what the doctor ordered. It filled Paul's tank. It gave him just what he needed to persevere and keep preaching the gospel in Corinth. According to verse 11, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching people the good news of Jesus Christ and helping them grow in their faith. Well, what an amazing opportunity Paul had there in Corinth. He stayed there much longer than he, than he had stayed at the other cities where he had planted churches. Typically, he was in a city for a few weeks, maybe a few short months, and then he moved on. Here, he was in Corinth for a year and a half. Over those 18 months, most of those Paul witnessed to were probably locals, but certainly others were just passing through. And I wonder how many countries and how many cities across the Roman Empire were impacted Because people came back home that had passed through Corinth during that 18 months that Paul was preaching. How many cities were transformed by the power of the gospel because Paul had established a spiritual beachhead for Jesus Christ in this very strategic city? I imagine that many more lives were changed than could ever be recorded for us here in the book of Acts. Well, I want to share with you three very important lessons that we can pull from Acts 18 here that we can apply to our lives today. These are all very important. Lesson number one, there is no excuse for being lazy. Every Christian needs to work. Every Christian needs to work. In Paul's day, Jewish rabbis didn't accept money from their disciples, from their students. The rabbis earned their way by practicing a trade. You see, all Jewish boys were expected to learn a trade at a young age, regardless of what profession they were eventually planning on going into. They had to learn a trade. In fact, the rabbis would regularly say, he who does not teach his son to work teaches him to steal. Those rabbis were pretty hardcore, huh? If you don't teach your son a trade, you're teaching him to steal. That's what they said. So at a young age, Paul had learned to trade, tent making. 
And whenever possible, he paid his own way out on the mission field by making tents. Well, a question came to my mind this last week that I'd really never thought about before. And the question goes like this. If Paul were alive today here in America, would he qualify for SSI? Some of you might say, well, that's a weird question. Well, yeah, I'm a weird kind of pastor. So that was my question. Would he qualify for SSI? Would he qualify for disability benefits through Social Security? And as I thought about it, the answer I came to was, yeah, I think he would. Because think about what we've studied in the life of Paul so far. When he arrived in Galatia, remember, it says he had some sort of deadly illness. We think maybe it was malaria, but something had him almost on his deathbed that he was recovering from as he hoofed it up the mountain to the region of Galatia on his first missionary trip. Then he got to the third city in Galatia. Remember in Lystra what happened? They picked up rocks and chucked him at his head. He was knocked unconscious and they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. And then he gets to Philippi there, that first city he ministers to in Greece. And remember what happened there? They arrested him, roughed him up, and they took the scourging whip of the Romans and and tore shards of flesh off his back. He was beaten to a bloody pulp. Certainly by this time in his ministry, he had some lingering permanent effects of all that abuse his body had gone through. Imagine uh, Paul At this point in time, uh, having pain, probably having these reoccurring migraine headaches because rocks had been thrown at his head and maybe some uh, lung issues because of the malaria, whatever he had had. Possibly his back still killed him because he had been roughed up and scourged there in Philippi. Certainly he had some things that would have been qualified, that would have qualified him to get some sort of kickback. And so here's the question. Here's my point. Paul still worked. Even though he had every reason in the world to stop working, he worked anyway. He worked anyway. And I would say that God would say to each of us, we need to work one way or another. If you can't work outside the home, work inside the home. If you can't work inside the home, work at church. If you can't work standing up, then work sitting down. If you can't work sitting down, then work lying down. If you can't work with your feet and legs, then work with your arms and hands. Quick example. Just about every single Sunday, we've got a viewer here online named Melly. Melly has struggled for years with MS. Now she's up around 80 years old, and she cannot, at this point in time, get out of bed. Her legs won't hold her up. And so she's been having issues with her back and with her legs. And so what does Melly do is she lies in her bed. Her legs and, and her feet don't work very well right now. She can't go back and forth to different places. She used to be at church handing out bulletins. She can't come to church and do that anymore. So what does Melly do? She spends a lot of her day crocheting hats just like this one. And so let me model one of these beautiful Melly hats for us today. So she's been making these as she lies in her bed. A few months ago, I went to visit Melly and her husband, Skip, and I picked up a few bags full of these hats. And on a Friday night, yeah, the weather was really cold at the time. It was winter here in Victorville. On a Friday night, a few of our teenagers and I went in a few vehicles out to downtown Victorville. We found some homeless men and women, and we handed out some of Melly's hats. And it was one of the coolest things I've seen all year long, looking across the parking lot, and seeing various homeless individuals with warm heads 
because they had a brand new hat that Melly had handmade them. Isn't that awesome? Melly is a great example of one who does what she can to keep working because God has given her that skill and ability that she can use to bless others. I want to say to you, parents, your kids are never too young to start doing productive work. In fact, when my kids were very little, we gave them little chores. I've got a quick video I want to share with you. Kara, my youngest daughter, here's Kara at work when she was just four years old. Isn't that great? (laughs) The Davis sweatshop was in full operation. (laughs) Even some one or two-year-olds are not too little to pick up toys or start doing some chores around the house. Now that it's summertime, parents and grandparents, put those kids and grandkids to work. You don't need to drive them like a slave driver would or something. You don't have to be working necessarily 40 hours a week. But have them do productive, productive work because God has made us. To work. Point number two, lesson number two. God has called you to be a watchman on the wall, warning those around you of the coming judgment. In His grace, God has taken the blinders off your spiritual eyes and He has allowed you to see what your family and friends can't see. You can see that the world is in a downward spiral of sin, can't you? You can see, can't you, that our days here in America are numbered. You can see, can't you, that Jesus' return is closer than it's ever been. You can see, can't you, that the day of judgment is closer than it's ever been. You can see these things. You can see that millions of good people are not going to make it to heaven, but are going to end up going to hell. You can see, can't you, that millions of people who the world would call religious or moral people are going to hell because ultimately you can see the truth that God has communicated to us in his word. And that is the greatest sin that anyone could ever commit, according to God, is the sin of rejecting his son, Jesus Christ. You can see that. So no matter how good, no matter how religious, no matter how moral someone might be in the eyes of the world, so many of those who are good, moral, and religious are going straight to hell because they have rejected Jesus Christ. You can see that. And God has asked you in your wisdom and your understanding and with your spiritual insight to be the watchman on the wall that warns those around you about what is coming. You and I have a God-given responsibility as watchmen on the walls to warn the people we care about. They are sinners in need of a Savior. They need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus says to us through Acts 18 here, tell them, tell them. Finally, lesson number three, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for God is with you. I believe Jesus' words of encouragement for Paul here in verses 9 and 10 are also Jesus' words of encouragement for you and me today. Like Paul, some of you are a little scared to share Jesus with those around you because they're a hostile crowd. They don't like it when you talk about Jesus. They don't like it when you invite them to church. 
Jesus tells you today, do not be afraid. Some of you are wondering if it's time to shut up about Jesus and just keep the peace. And I believe Jesus is telling us today, keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Some of you are wondering where God is. And as you're out on a limb for him, God, I'm doing this for you. Uh, Do you have my back? Are you even with me? And God tells us so clearly here in the text, I am with you. God is with you. He tells you today, church, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For God is with you. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us. Every step of the way, as we boldly share the good news of Jesus, as we tell people about what you have done in the past, what you are doing in our lives today, and about your coming that is sooner than it's ever been. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would tell people, help us to be the watchmen on the walls that you've called us to be, to warn people because we can see what they can't see. We can understand what they can't understand. And so I pray, O God, that we would preach effectively and convincingly and accurately your word, the truth of the gospel. And I pray, O God, that your Holy Spirit would flip the switch in their minds and in their hearts so they can see the truth as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, church, the days are shorter than they've ever been. Jesus' return is closer. Judgment Day is closer than it's ever been. And so we have no time to waste. Let's share these messages, Facebook, YouTube. Share it with others that need to hear these messages. Reach out to others and and tell them what God has done in your life and, and urge them to accept Christ. Pray for those you know who are not saved. Let's work together to share the good news of Jesus Christ, even at times when we're living in sin city and we look around us and it breaks our heart that so many people are going through the downward spiral of sin and don't even realize it. Let's make sure that we keep sharing the truth of Jesus. If you're watching today and you've never made that decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you're not sure if you died today that you would even go to heaven, I want you to know there is a way you can know for sure that if you died today, you'd be with God in heaven forever and ever. And that is to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life. We like to share the ABCs here at Impact. If you want to put Jesus in the driver's seat, remember, A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need the Savior, Jesus. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And C, choose to begin following him and serving him and obeying him beginning today. If you're ready to make that decision for Jesus Christ, reach out to him right now in prayer. Ask him to come into your life. And please reach out to us at Impact and let us know that you've made this decision. Once again, our phone number is 760-246-4100. Or you can email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. Let's continue sharing the good news until Jesus Christ calls us home. God bless you, church. Be bold as you love, as you learn, and as you serve together with us. God bless you.